CME for this podcast is available at AUA University, auau.auanet.org. Support has been provided by an independent educational grant from AbbVie, Amgen, Astellas, AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Genomic Health, Genentech, Merck, Pfizer Incorporated, and Sanofi Genzyme. Good morning. We'll go ahead and get started. Um, it is about 7.30. Uh, I have some, I'm Mike Cookson from the University of Oklahoma. We have uh, an outstanding faculty here today. We have Adam Keibel from Brigham. We have Will Lawrence from University of Utah and Dave Girard from Wisconsin. So prostate cancer has many faces and the disease states are highly linked to survival. Early, newly diagnosed uh, men have a long uh, uh, potential five-year survival and certainly 10 and beyond, whereas if you look at those bottom three, the newly diagnosed metastatic, the M0 CRPC, or just CRPC in general, um, we certainly don't cure those men and there's limited um, survival. We're trying to extend the survival and the quality and length of their life. Put another way, if you look at it epidemiologically in terms of the numbers, these numbers are not always easy to get, but we know that somewhere between 180 and 190,000 new cases, um, about 10,000 men present with newly diagnosed metastatic disease. That has increased a little bit in where I live um, due to some lack of screening. Um, and then we see that there's somewhere around 30,000 men that are walking around with some metastatic symptomatic CRPC, somewhere estimates in the range of 40 to 50,000 that we using conventional imaging, haven't been able to detect their metastatic disease, so they're M0 CRPC patients. And there's over 3 million men, you know, in the U.S. walking around with some form of prostate cancer that has been treated or has relapsed and, and is recurring. So it's a, there's a large number of these people. I'm going to focus on the metastatic um, uh, newly diagnosed patients in this short talk. So from a historical perspective, we've known for more than 70 years that prostate cancer is responsive to um, androgen therapy. We know that androgen deprivation therapy will uh, reduce or put prostate cancer into remission. And uh, based on some of the pioneering work from one of our Nobel Prize winners in the early days. We also know that most patients that present with metastatic or advanced prostate cancer are gonna be responsive to androgen deprivation therapy probably more than 90%. There are some that are not, and when you see that, then that's time for sure to be thinking about a neuroendocrine or a small cell type tumor, but most do initially respond, but they will ultimately progress. You'll see in the studies that I'm gonna discuss that patients have been subcategorized based on the volume of their disease. So we know that the amount of uh, metastatic burden that they present with has a lot of prognostic implications for how they'll respond to therapy. And this was first reported in 19, probably in some of the earlier studies looking at combined androgen deprivation therapy in the late 80s, as well as uh, some of the early bilateral orchiectomy flutamide study listed here, um, where that Kaplan-Meier curve shows that it's the extent of disease rather than the combination of orchiectomy and flutamide that really drove the outcomes in these patients. So response was highly linked. 
and then we'll talk about this charted study where they divided patients up into um, high and low volume, and the high volume patients had visceral metastases, so liver, lung, soft tissue, or four or more bone mets, and they're usually one of those metastases outside of the pelvis or the um, axial skeleton. Other definitions have been proposed, but it seems like this charted definition is being baked into the fabric of a lot of studies so that they can compare um, results across um, different studies. Uh, we know that when you treat patients with ADT, you get an initial response. Uh, some patients go lower than others, and that PSA response, as was seen in, in this intermittent ADT study versus continuous, um, was a powerful prognostic indicator. If the PSA went to less than four in that six to seven month period, those patients were going to get a much more durable response than those that don't have quite that. So how can we improve on the survival of men with advanced disease? For years, all we really had was ADT therapy, and now we have a couple of options to categorically described as chemo-hormonal, and we'll talk about docetaxel, um, maximum androgen targeting. We used to call it like maximum androgen ablation, but we're probably not, um, that's probably not the best term, and there's a several agents in that space that we can talk about. This was the charted study, so all of us are probably pretty familiar with this because now it's a couple of years down the road, but this was a study that was a breakthrough. You know, when we first looked at docetaxel in the castration-resistant patients, we got just a few months of benefit, but they were sort of at the end of the line, and it's hard to demonstrate a benefit in patients that were so heavily pretreated. But in these men that are newly diagnosed metastatic, we're seeing significant improvements. Again, they did look at docetaxel with ADT versus ADT alone, and they were subdivided into that high and low volume. And what we found was that patients that had overall, there was about more than a year of difference in the overall survival of these patients, 57 as compared to 44 months. But the biggest, oh, excuse me, the biggest bang for our buck is going to be in this high volume category where the results were almost a year and a half of survival difference, uh, and we really don't see that kind of dramatic curve separation in those patients that were designated as low volume. So a lot of oncologists and a lot of urologists that deal with this often think of patients when they have high volume disease as chemotherapy candidates, as long as their health and performance status is good. And for patients that are not so high volume, we have other options, which I'll show you. Th this was the similar study to charted. This is the stampede study, and again, um, similar results. They didn't have that high, low volume categorization, but uh, there was a dramatic and, and significant one-year difference in patients treated with the chemotherapy in addition to ADT. So that is a standard. There were other studies, so there was a French study um, which had pretty significant separations, but it didn't statistically meet the muster. But when you put all those into a meta-analysis, overall this forest plot um, kind of demonstrates the take-home message that docetaxel and ADT should be considered a standard of care for men with newly diagnosed metastatic disease based on all the information that we have available. So now what about that maximum androgen targeting? So these were sort of two back-to-back -back New England Journal papers that were published adding um, abiraterone and prednisone uh, to ADT as compared to ADT alone, and we'll go through those uh, pretty quickly. The first uh, study that I have here is the latitude study, over 1,000 men, and again, with the addition of abiraterone, both overall survival and radiographic progression-free survival in the magnitude of about a 40% risk reduction in those men 
who were treated with a combination therapy. And this almost looks like the same slide. This is the Stampede study, had about 2,000 men in it. Again, most were metastatic, some were locally advanced, treated with abiraterone plus ADT versus ADT alone, and almost mirror image results in terms of what we saw, in terms of overall survival, as well as a uh, progression-free survival. So very important to think that you know, we can add this additional therapy and really get a significant improvement. This has not been published yet, but was presented at GU ASCO, and this is the ARCHES study. So this is another study looking at uh, newly diagnosed, most of them were metastatic, some were locally advanced, and they're hormone sensitive. And what they did was they randomized them two to one, um, half of them, or two, two, two out of three got enzalutamide, and the other group were on placebo, plus ADT. So it's ADT and enzalutamide compared, and they looked at radiographic progression-free survival. Um, this is just a little baseline characteristic to show you that they did divide patients into high and low volume. About two-thirds of them had what would be considered high-volume disease at presentation. There were some patients, I think maybe 30% or so, that had had prior chemotherapy as well. Uh, this was the um, radiographic progression-free survival, which was highly significant, um, about a somewhere around a 60% risk reduction in the development of, of a progression of their disease, adding enzalutamide to the ADT as compared to ADT alone. They had uh, subgroup analysis, and I mentioned that they were divided into low and high volume. Like abiraterone, it worked in the low and high volume. Same here, and it also worked in patients that had had prior docetaxel chemotherapy. So the conclusions were that this was a, an advancement in terms of um, adding enzalutamide, which we'll hear more about later. It has a good track record in some of these other disease states more advanced, and you can see that these drugs are moving into a more hormone-sensitive um, disease state now. So what about definitive radiation? So this is a hot topic, and people are looking at definitive treatment in general for the primary in patients who present with metastatic disease. There's some theories about why this might be important. Uh, one of them could be just improve local control. Um, it may have some immunologic uh, benefit to the patient, and it also may improve, ultimately, um, their cancer and overall survival. So. This table is in, is in your handbook, so you have it. It's not meant to be a great slide presentation, except for a lot of the data that was driving the new studies was derived from retrospective reviews, which are confounded by selection bias, healthiest people, lower volume disease, et cetera, where they looked at what if they treated the primary with surgery or radiation, would those patients do better? And there was publications that said, yeah, they did better, but they were flawed or at least subject to criticism. So there have been a couple of randomized level one evidence studies in radiation that have come forward recently. This was the first one, it was called HORAD, and basically uh, they have patients with metastatic disease, treated with ADT, and then half of them were treated with local radiation. Um, what they found was that uh, they did have uh, categories of low and high volume, so that'll come back in a minute. But there was no overall survival advantage in this relatively small trial, it was about 400 patients, I think. Um, they didn't show a survival advantage to adding the radiation to the metastatic disease state. However, in those patients that were lower volume, there was a significant, uh, uh, there was a trend towards this in the low volume men. And so while there was no overall survival benefit, um, there was some um, 
hypothesis generating uh, theory that in the low volume men there was improved radiographic progression free survival. This was the second study. This was a, a stampede study uh, where, um, again, patients with newly diagnosed metastatic disease were randomized to uh, local treatment or not, and the local treatment was radiation, and all of them were treated with ADT. And this one had about 2,000 patients in each arm. And what they found was for overall, sorry about the typo, overall there was no overall survival advantage, but there was radiographic progression-free survival advantage um, in those patients as a whole. And then um, when they subsetted those patients into low volume, there was a significant benefit in terms of their uh, both overall survival and progression-free survival. So adding radiation to the local in low volume patients in Stampede appeared to be um, both uh, beneficial in terms of progression as well as overall survival. And so that's the radiation part of the story. Um, for the surgical part of the story, we have to stay tuned because these are studies that are ongoing um, looking at whether radiation, additional radiation is being looked at, but they're also looking at the role of radical prostatectomy. This is the U.S. study that we'll be, we are enrolling patients in where half of them they all get ADT, and in about six months, they get treatment. Half of them get treatment. Within that treatment, there's a pre-specified number that get radiation and surgery. So they're not all surgery, but it will be one of those um, tests of whether or not there's a benefit to radical prostatectomy, for example, in patients with newly diagnosed metastatic disease. So the take-home messages that I have for this session are here. Um, we know that chemo, hormonal therapy, um, is a standard of care and improves survival in men uh, with metastatic disease. The best uh, benefit appears to be derived from those with high volume, hormone sensitive metastatic disease. Maximum androgen targeting, both high and low volume, has improved uh, overall survival um, with use of abiraterone and progression free survival with um, at least the presentation from GUASCO. We're waiting for the um, hard copy presentation uh, to be published soon. When it comes to treating the primary, uh, we think there may be some benefit to uh, use of radiation for those low volume patients with metastatic disease in combination with their ADT. And we really don't have any good guidance on the use of surgery in these patients yet, so we really need to await the results of the ongoing uh, clinical trials for that. And so with that, I um, will conclude my part, and I thank you for your attention, um, and then we'll go ahead and get our next speaker up. Thank you. Good morning. I'm Will Lorentz. I'm a urologic oncologist at the University of uh, Utah. Um, Thanks, Mike. That was great. Um, so I'm going to go through the current uh, AUA CRPC guidelines. We'll go through each of the six index patients and talk briefly about um, the trials that supported uh, the approval of the various drugs in those patients. Um, I'm going to commit a cardinal sin. I have way too many slides to cover in about 20 or 25 minutes. So bear with me. I'll go quickly through them, but I wanted, them, I wanted you to have them at least in your course materials, so you can go back and reference these things. Our, our plan right now is to, is to save time for uh, questions towards the end, but when I finish my talk, if there's a burning question and we have time, we can uh, address that as well. Um, so there are lots of guidelines out there for advanced prostate cancer. ASCO has one, AUA obviously, European, Canadian, 
as well as the NCCN. Um, ours was one of the first ones, and it was set up, as you know, with the six index patients. Um, just so you know, we will be updating the AUA's guidelines, and instead of it being just CRPC, it's going to be cover all of advanced prostate cancer. So it will also in incorporate hormone-sensitive uh, men as well. And the plan is for that to be released uh, at next year's AUA. Um, the AUA CRPC guideline was first published in 2015. We have since had two um, uh, amendments to it. As you know, this space um, has changed dramatically over the last uh, really five to, to ten years. And so it's from a guideline perspective, it's really tough to keep up with things as, as, as all these new trials are coming out almost continuously. At this point, we have six approved new agents for the treatment of men with uh, um, CRPC and one that is pending approval right now, um, daralutamide. But pretty remarkable uh, what's changed in how we manage these patients since uh, docetaxel was the only agent um, in 2004. Quick uh, schematic of that treatment evolution showing the various trials, um, their names, when, uh, when they were published. Uh, and again, the daralutamide trial uh, that's in M0 CRPC men was just published uh, literally two months ago in the New England Journal. And we'll talk briefly about that when we discuss those patients. So um, when we set out to um, put the AUA CRPC guideline together, um, we decided to base it around six different index patients. And those index patients were based on uh, whether or not they had symptoms, what their performance status was, whether they had had prior docetaxel chemotherapy, uh, and then the presence or abs absence of metastatic disease. And what you'll see as we go through each of these index patients, I'll try and, and, and uh, point out the differences between the two. It can get confusing keeping them um, separated, and, and, and trust me, we all can, can get them mixed up, but there's a really nice schematic that the AUA's put out, and here it is, that basically is your cheat sheet that shows you the six index patients with what the guideline statements are in terms of treating each of those. So let's start with index patient one. And this is a gentleman who has um, M0 CRPC. So on radiographic imaging, CT or bone scan, they have no evidence of metastatic disease. And then they have a rising PSA in, uh, despite having a uh, castrate testosterone. Castrate testosterone is defined as less than 10 nanograms uh, per deciliter. And a rising PSA is described as a PSA that's two or above nadir, at least 25% above what the nadir was, and you have to verify with a repeat PSA at least three um, weeks um, after that initial one. So that's how we define an M0 CRPC patient. And here's the guideline statement um, uh, as, it, as it reads straight from the AUA guidelines. We'll, we'll break it down from here. At this point, um, there's grade uh, level A evidence to suggest that clinicians should offer either apalutamide or enzalutamide in these men. Let's go through the two trials briefly that um, led to the approval of apalutamide and then the approval of enzalutamide. So this is the Spartan trial. was published in the New England Journal in 2018. And basically what they did was took just over 1,200 men, randomized them in a two-to-one fashion to receive either apalutamide plus ADT versus placebo plus ADT. All of these men had no evidence of metastatic disease. They had a rising PSA, and importantly, their PSA doubling time was less than 10 months. They were then also stratified into those who had a doubling time of less than six months and those that had one of greater than six months. But clearly, this was a population that was enriched um, for having events. And then the endpoint was metastasis-free survival, and this was a new endpoint 
I'm not going to get into how um, the FDA ended up accepting this endpoint, but it's basically a surrogate and, and appears to be a very good surrogate for overall survival. This just shows the patient demographics. The primary endpoint, again, was metastasis-free survival, and what you see are dramatic Kaplan-Meier curves there. Big difference with a median uh, metastasis-free survival of 40.5 months versus 16.2 months, so, so very dramatic curves. In terms of adverse events, uh, the drug was well tolerated. We see um, adverse events pretty similar to this class of drugs. And again, these are, these are the second generation androgen uh, receptor blockers. Um, what was a little different with, with apalutamide is there is a higher rate of rash in these patients. And that's something that we do see uh, almost 24% versus 5.5% in the placebo group. Fatigue was the most common. Uh, side effect, but for the most part, uh, the drug was, was well tolerated by patients. So in conclusion, apalutamide decreased the risk of metastasis or death uh, by 72% and prolonged the median metastasis-free survival in these men. Um, in terms of all of the secondary endpoints, um, almost every one of those was also positive in favor of apalutamide over um, the uh, placebo arm. So, so a positive trial, and this was the first agent that was uh, FDA approved in, in these M0 CRPC patients. The next trial is the PROSPER trial, um, and this trial very similar design to the one I just described. Um, over 1,400 men with M0 CRPC, um, they too had doubling times of less than 10 months, randomized in a two-to-one fashion to enzalutamide plus ADT versus placebo plus ADT. Same endpoint of um, metastasis-free survival, and what you see are very similar Kaplan-Meier curves. A dramatic difference, 36.3 uh, months in terms of median metastasis-free survival versus 14.7 in the placebo arm. Also, secondary endpoints, positive uh, in the enzalutamide trial. An adverse event profile very similar to what we've seen um, from enzalutamide in all of the um, more advanced um, trials that led to its approval in the pre and post docetaxel state. Convulsion rate, very low. I think uh, severe SAEs were only two patients that had convulsive ep episodes. Fatigue, the most common side effect, which is similar to what we saw in the, in the apalutamide study, 33% versus 14%. Um, and the rest of the side effects are, are, are what we're what we would expect. So again, in this M0 CRPC uh, group, 71% reduction in the relative risk of developing metastases, pretty dramatic. Um, and it was well tolerated and all the secondary endpoints were, were positive as well. Now, daralutamide. This is the trial I mentioned that was just published, the Aramis trial. It's not FDA approved yet in this space, but we're, it, we're waiting that approval. Um, I, I have no idea when it will be, but I um, certainly would expect this to happen before the next iteration of our guidelines come out. Um, very similar design, 15, over 1,500 men, PSA doubling times less than 10 months, randomized in a two-to-one fashion to get darlutamide plus ADT versus placebo um, plus ADT. Similar patient demographics, also stratified by men with doubling times less than six months versus those with the six to 10 month range. And again, almost exactly the same Kaplan-Meier curves that I've shown you in the previous two studies. Dramatic, a 40.4 month metastasis-free survival uh, in terms of median and against placebo of 18. So a very positive trial. Also, all of the secondary endpoints 
uh, were positive as well. Overall survival is not mature yet. It was a secondary endpoint, but certainly is trending towards it being positive as well. Adverse events. This drug appeared to be very well tolerated. Um, overall, the the um, severe adverse events are very similar to what we saw with placebo. Fatigue was the most common, um, seeing a little bit higher rate of fatigue in the um, darlutamide group as compared to the placebo, but overall appears to be uh, a well-tolerated drug. Conclusions, the same as what I mentioned before. It showed a, a benefit in terms of metastasis-free survival. Um, there was a 29% reduction in the risk of, of death at the secondary endpoint at the interim analysis. Also, uh, other endpoints, quality of life, uh, pain progression, uh, the, the um, um, progression of pain, all of those things were, were better in the darlutamide, uh, and from a safety standpoint, appeared to be well tolerated. So for our first index patient, the M0-CRPC patient, um, key things I think take-home messages are, in these men, you can offer two drugs at this point, hopefully three soon for those that are higher, highest risk for death. And, and right now, one of the ways we risk stratify these men is by their PSA doubling time. We talked about the three trials and the three drugs that um, we're going to be able to use soon in these men. I didn't get into how second-generation PET scans are going to really change this disease state. And it, maybe it's something we can talk about if we have time in the question-answer section. But th these new PET scans are enabling us to find metastatic disease earlier in, this pa in these patients and really are going to impact this, this disease state. And, you know, a lot of people have said M0 may not even exist at, uh, moving forward as our imaging studies get better at detecting where the, the metastatic disease actually is. Let's move on to index patient two. So now we have a, a patient who is asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic, but has evidence of metastatic disease on their um, CT scans or bone scans, and they've never seen docetaxel chemotherapy before. So in this patient, clinicians should offer, and there's, there's uh, level A evidence to suggest they should offer either abiraterone, enzalutamide, docetaxel, or cell T. Now I'm gonna very quickly go through the, the um, We'll, we'll cover four trials that, that support the use of those agents in these patients. The first is the Cougar 302 trial. This was the abiraterone trial. Over 1,000 men randomized to abiraterone or placebo, and what you see is a survival benefit favoring abiraterone. Very similar thing for enzalutamide, the PREVAIL trial. Again, over 1,700 patients randomized to enza versus placebo. Um, here's the schematic for that trial, and again, co-primary endpoints, so a PFS endpoint and an overall survival endpoint, both showing um, uh, improvement in overall survival and PFS for the enzalutamide group. Docetaxel, this is uh, an older study back in 2004, the TAX-327 study, which showed the first active agent in, in men with CRPC, but basically um, it was docetaxel, considered in two different regimens versus mitoxantrone, and what they found was that the, the Q three-week regimen of docetaxel uh, improved survival over mitoxantrone by roughly four months. And then Cipulus LT, so this is the first immunotherapy that was approved in advanced prostate cancer. The IMPACT trial, about 512 men, were randomized in a two-to-one fashion to either Cipulus LT or placebo, and again, you see uh, roughly a four-month survival, overall survival benefit in those who received um, the immunotherapy versus the placebo. So that's a, a quick run through index patient two. Let's move on to index patient three. 
Um, this patient is one who now is symptomatic. So the same as index patient two, except now we have someone who's symptomatic. They've never seen docetaxel before and they have a good performance status. So there's grade level A evidence that we should offer either abiraterone, enzalutamide, or docetaxel in these patients. And then also for those without visceral disease that have bony metastasis, we can also offer radium-223. So let's look at evidence that supports that. Radium-223 trial randomized patients to either radium um, plus standard of care or placebo plus standard of care. And the standard of care obviously was kind of dealer's choice. Um, and what they found was a um, statistically significant survival benefit for those that receive radium. The key with this is these patients did not have visceral metastases. Um, in this trial, uh, patients who had received docetaxel and had also not received docetaxel um, were included and they were stratified. So what you'll find out is that when we get to the later index patients, uh, specifically uh, index patient five, radium is an option in, in patients that have, have seen docetaxel before as well. So moving on to index patient four, um, now we still have a symptomatic um, metastatic CRPC patient who's not seen docetaxel chemotherapy, but the key here is this patient has poor performance status. And so we don't have great, uh, in terms of how we grade the evidence, we don't have the highest level of evidence here, but um, the, the panel felt like this was a grade C. And patients, uh, sorry, providers can recommend abiraterone or enzalutamide in these symptomatic patients because um, in someone with poor performance status, in general, those androgen receptors are better tolerated than cytotoxic chemotherapy. Now, we kind of hedge and give clinicians uh, the option that if someone's performance status is poor because of their disease burden, then you could still consider chemotherapy. And we, we've all seen patients that responded to chemotherapy and their performance status uh, dramatically improved. And then the same, the same applies to radium-223. So those are expert opinions that you could use those agents if you felt like the patient's poor, poor performance status was directly related to their disease burden. Now let's move to the last two index patients. This will be index patient five and six. The key for these pa th this group of patients is they have received docetaxel chemotherapy before. So index patient five is symptomatic but has a good performance status. So what are your options? And there's good evidence in terms of uh, grade level uh, A to recommend either abiraterone, cabazitaxel, or enzalutamide. Abiraterone, uh, this was the first ABBY study. Uh, it was Cougar 301 study, over, over 1,100 men, almost 1,200 men. Uh, who were uh, randomized to ABBY versus placebo, and you see a, a significant overall survival advantage. The AFFIRM trial, this was enzalutamide's uh, first big uh, phase three trial, and what you see is a very similar Kaplan-Meier curve to what we saw with ABBY. Uh, again, 1,200 patients, overall survival favored enzalutamide, 18.4 months versus 13.6. And then uh, the TROPIC study, cabazitaxel, um, and this was, again, in patients who have received docetaxel chemotherapy before. You see improved survival with cabazitaxel versus mitoxantrone. I give you this slide just as a summary of the post-docetaxel clinical trials. You'll see radium uh, is down at the bottom, but we basically have three, uh, sorry, four agents that have been studied in these post-docetaxel men with CRPC, all showing um, overall survival uh, benefit. Index patient five, um, 
this is what we we talked about. Uh, no, this is a little different. Sorry. So in men who um, there's there's basically grade C or expert opinion uh, level evidence to suggest that you can offer um, docetaxel to these men again, especially in someone who responded well, but maybe had to discontinue treatment because of reversible side effects. And there's been a period of time they've recovered and they still have good performance status, you could re-challenge those patients with uh, docetaxel and, and there's some evidence to suggest that's okay. Um, lastly, index patient six. Now, still we're in the, the post-docetaxel treatment uh, space here, but these men are symptomatic and have a poor performance status. And in, in this scenario, um, most of the guideline, pretty much all of the guideline panel recommends that you should offer palliative care in this situation. Again, if their poor performance status is directly related to their disease burden, you do have the option of treating them with one of the androgen um, receptor blockers. Typically, chemotherapy is not a good idea in these patients um, just because of their, their poor performance status. Okay, let's end on uh, discussing bone health for a minute. Obviously, men in, uh, on continuous androgen deprivation in this CRPC state, bone health is a key component of managing them. This is a Sear Medicare study that showed the more ADT you get, the higher the rate of your fracture risk. And we know that. Um, and, and a lot of these men at baseline have some degree of osteopenia or even osteoporosis. So the recommendation is getting a DEXA scan at baseline to define their bone health. If they do have osteopenia or osteoporosis, um, uh, makes sense to go ahead and treat that. And then importantly, to all these men, they need to stop smoking, need to moderate their drinking, and then also um, try to get uh, on a schedule where they're doing regular weight-bearing exercise. In terms of what to recommend, um, dosage-wise of, of vitamin D and calcium supplementations, the National Osteoporosis Foundation recommends that men get at least 1,200 milligrams of calcium daily, daily and then either uh, between 800 and 1,000 international units of vitamin D. The AUA guideline says that clinicians may choose between denosumab or zoledronic acid uh, when selecting a preventative treatment uh, of skeletal-related events in men with CRPC who have bony mets. Um, this is a summary slide showing the disease state progression as you move through uh, the CRPC state, and then all of the various um, agents that are available for us to treat these men with now. Um, I'll go back to that slide for a minute. It's remarkable we have all these agents now that just opens up a whole ton of questions for us. Which one do you give first? How do you sequence them? Are there combinations that, that would work better? So that's kind of where we are now is trying to figure out sequencing, combinations, and, and how best to treat these men. Again, here is the, um, the figure, the kind of summary figure of the AUA guidelines. I think if you're going to keep anything in your clinic, this is a good one to have. Um, posted on the wall if you, if you do treat these men with advanced prostate cancer. Um, so in summary, we all feel that urologists should be the primary uh, uh, caregiver for these men with advanced prostate cancer. There's clearly a role um, for medical oncology. You, you, you need to have them as colleagues, but, but at least early on in the, in the CRPC uh, space, uh, urologists should remain the primary caregiver. Um, there's lots of evidence-based treatment options out there, and then again, we'll have new guidelines coming out, hopefully this time next year. Um, thank you. So what we're going to do is uh, Dr. Gerard and myself will sort of 
elaborate a little bit more on the guidelines because that was a really nice overview. So repetition, I find, is the key to understanding everything. So with a little more detail, Dr. Gerard will give, some, uh, give us some lectures on the treatment, but with both chemotherapy and using the androgen access. We're going to try and save some time at the end for questions, okay? So. Good. Thank you, Dr. Keibel. So we'll dig a little bit deeper into the mechanism, the indications and side effects of some of these medications that we've talked about here. And what I'd like to do is start off by recognizing that the expression of the androgen receptor and indeed the amplification of the androgen receptor in castration-resistant prostate cancer was really a very profound discovery uh, in the last 25 years. Uh, this led to the development of these androgen biosynthesis inhibitors and receptor signaling agents in advanced disease and really opened up a whole new area of treatment. So uh, this is a, uh, a question five uh, uh, for our ARS here. And if you all will pull your phones out. So direct mechanisms of action for enzalutamide include all of the following except inhibiting binding of androgen receptor to DNA, inhibiting binding of ant androgens to androgen receptor, uh, nuclear translocation, or in directly inhibiting PSA transcription. So if we could go ahead and vote here. I should click to the next slide. Okay. Very good, very good. So uh, we'll talk about uh, mechanistically about this drug a little bit more. Question six, common side effects associated with enzalutamide include all of the following except, except hypertension, seizure, fatigue, hot flushes. Okay, a little more, but this was a little bit of a trick question, uh, but seizures are not a very common side effect, a very infrequent side effect. Uh, they were in some of the more advanced studies that were done, uh, seizures were found, but we'll talk again more about that. So, realize that the majority of these uh, androgen biosynthesis inhibitors and receptor signaling antagonists start later in the disease. Typically, uh, the initial FDA validation is in the symptomatic post-chemotherapy space, uh, it, it then uh, are they're generally shifted into the pre-chemotherapy space. And indeed, indeed now, a trend has been uh, moving into the M0, castration-resistant prostate cancer space, uh, as well as combination uh, with uh, uh, androgen deprivation therapy for metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. So for us as urologists, it's very important to be aware of these drugs. Uh, are, we're using them more commonly, and we certainly need to be aware of the side effects and the indications. The objectives of this lecture are to look at mechanisms for castration-resistant prostate cancer. We'll touch briefly on ligand-dependent mechanisms. Uh, we'll also seek to understand uh, the side effects and mechanisms of abiraterone and enzalutamide, uh, as well as apalutamide and darolutamide. 
and we'll also discuss uh, new applications for these oral androgen axis agents. So this is a case uh, that we'll start off with, a 73-year-old uh, with a history of biochemical recurrence following radiation therapy. Uh, three year, he was placed on um, androgen deprivation therapy, and three years later, he develops a rising PSA uh, while on continuous uh, LHRH therapy. Uh, his testosterone is appropriately, appropriately low, and he has new uh, pelvic metastases uh, no, noted as well as retroperitoneal lymph nodes. So the question is, what are the options for treatment for this patient? Now, this rec recognition that the androgen receptors expressed in castration-resistant prostate cancer uh, is a very important one. This is looking at overexpression of the AR in a lymph node, and indeed, the study on the right is actually demonstrating that over 70% of men who end up dying from their prostate cancer continue to overexpress the androgen receptor. We're not going to talk about uh, non-ligand-dependent mechanisms, but rather focus on ligand-dependent mechanisms since these drugs really target these, and these are much more commonly found. Amplification of the androgen receptor is very important. Uh, more androgen receptor uh, improves its ability to bind low levels of ligand. Another mechanism is what, uh, the mutation of the androgen receptor. So by mutation, uh, what the androgen receptor is able to do is bind uh, additional ligands, such as glucocorticoids uh, and other uh, uh, ligands, essentially allowing it uh, to act in a more promiscuous fashion. The third mechanism that we'll uh, touch on here are the contribution that adrenal androgens play in this whole process. And again, abiraterone will target uh, the, con the conversion uh, of these adrenal androgens and has a, an effect in the majority of castration-resistant prostate cancer. Abiraterone specifically targets the uh, CYP17 hydrolase and lyase activities of uh, uh, CYP17. And this pre prevents the conversion of uh, pregnenolone to DHEA, androstenedione, uh, and testosterone. Again, it specifically target, targets, uh, it inhibits uh, irreversibly uh, these uh, enzymes. And one can see that this would potentially lead to mineral corticoid side effects, and indeed that's something we need to be aware of with regard to this. The first study that was done, uh, which, which was touched on, uh, was this trial looking at, it was a phase three trial in men post-chemotherapy, the Cougar 301 trial, really demonstrated that abiraterone uh, versus placebo improved survival in these patients. It led to a uh, approximately five-month improvement in survival. And this led to the FDA approval of this drug. It was then shifted into the pre-chemotherapy space. And I'm showing you here some of the data uh, just demonstrating that not only improvement in survival, uh, but also radiographic uh, progression-free progression survival was also improved. These drugs have a very important role in improving quality of life as well. And what we see here is that in patients that received abiraterone in these trials, the need for opioids was, opioids was decreased and indeed delayed in individuals that received abiraterone. Now the mechanisms uh, of these drugs really explain the side effects. 
So if you're blocking uh, these hydrolase and lice activity of CYP17, uh, aldosterone levels go up. And as we know, uh, this results in salt absorption, secretion of potassium. Uh, these patients have uh, peripheral edema. Uh, they can get into issues with fluid overload uh, as well as low potassium. Uh, generally, we use prednisone in conjunction with these uh, drugs in order to offset these mineral corticoid side effects. These are the uh, side effects associated uh, with the drug in the pre-chemotherapy space. In addition to the fluid retention, uh, hypokalemia, and hypertension I mentioned, it's important to realize that these also uh, increase uh, the, uh, li these liver function uh, enzymes. So ALT and AST are uh, altered in these drugs, and it's important to realize that there are interactions with other drugs that you, you need to be aware of. So minimizing the side effects of abiraterone, you can decrease absorption by taking on an empty stomach. Uh, it's important to give this drug with prednisone either once or twice a day. The liver function tests and also electrolytes need to be checked two weeks after starting, uh, monthly for the first three months, and then quarterly. And if you do get in a situation where you find these to be elevated, uh, typically just holding the abiraterone until it normalizes is important. There are, uh, we need to work with our primary care physicians uh, to treat the hypertension and fluid retention that are seen with these patients. And again, it's important to be aware uh, that there are interactions with other drugs that can alter the these CYP enzymes as well. As was mentioned, uh, there is a uh, newer indication uh, for abiraterone. Its use uh, in conjunction with androgen deprivation therapy uh, earlier here in metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. The Latitude study randomized 1,200 patients it was really striking. Uh, this, this led to a decrease in uh, cancer progression by 18 months, a decreased risk of death by 38%. Uh, there was less pain, uh, delayed chemotherapy in these patients. Uh, again, we saw the liver uh, function tests, uh, abnormalities, and hypertension in these patients. So they're essentially exposing themselves to side effects uh, of these drugs at a slightly earlier time point. So which patients do we want to focus on abiraterone? Uh, it's FDA approved for metastatic uh, CRPC before and after chemotherapy and also in a metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. And it is being utilized uh, in somewhat of an off-label approach in some uh, M0 castration-resistant prostate cancer as well. Uh, the side effects of hypertension, hypokalemia, uh, and steroid-induced hyperglycemia, primarily from the prednisone, uh, are uh, things to be aware of. So we would want to be careful in patients that were brittle diabetics, um, had gastric ulcers, uh, again, a rap rapidly progressive disease, may want to think more about chemotherapy rather than uh, these oral agents. Again, be careful in patients with uh, significant cardiac disease and viral hepatitis, other things that affect uh, liver function would be important to be aware of. So our patient, uh, the 73-year-old, had a good response to abiraterone, and 10 months later, his PSA is rising again, uh, and he's having pain issues due to progression of his metastatic disease. He receives uh, docetaxel chemotherapy, has an improvement in his PSA and pain. Uh, he naders it at 8, but now his PSA is beginning to rise again. So uh, what would we want to do here? Uh, 
an option would be to t uh, consider cabazitaxel, which is uh, uh, a, uh, we'll talk about in the near future. Another option would be if he had a response to, uh, to docetaxel, we could consider that. Uh, alternatively, we could consider uh, androgen singling uh, antagonist. And in this situation, uh, we'd want to perhaps consider enzalutamide. So realize that this is a uh, oral drug that was rationally targeted uh, against AR signaling. And it inhibits binding of the androgens to the androgen receptor. It also inhibits their trans, uh, a nuclear translocation of this as well. And finally, it, it blocks the association uh, of the androgen receptor with DNA. So it's a much uh, stronger drug than some of the earlier uh, drugs such as bicalutamide. Realize uh, that apalutamide and darolutamide essentially uh, function in the same manner. Uh, there, one the potential advantage of these drugs is that there is less uh, uh, um, crossing of the blood-brain barrier, so potentially there may be less, less central nervous issues uh, with these two agents. So again, it was initially examined in the post-chemotherapy space. Uh, this is the uh, FDA approval trial. It led to a uh, five-month improvement in survival. Moved into the pre-chemotherapy space in the PREVAIL trial. Uh, uh, there were other advantages, such as extending the, the time to the initiation of chemotherapy. Uh, again, uh, an improvement in quality of life in these individuals. So let's uh, focus down on some of the side effects uh, that were seen commonly. Uh, this was in the PREVAIL trial, the pre-chemotherapy trial. Fatigue is an issue with these patients, and one way to treat this is often giving these patients Ritalin if it becomes a very profound aspect, but it does cause us to shift use of this drug. Another one are hot flushes. Seizures were seen more commonly in the post-chemotherapy FDA approval trial with this drug. Uh, there was some debate uh, about exactly uh, why this was, but it's something to be aware of that it does lower your seizure threshold and you need to be careful uh, with regard to competing drugs in the, these types of patients. Hypertension uh, can be an issue in these patients and uh, there are also uh, increased risks of uh, falls with these. So when we're thinking about our elderly patient, the fatigue, increased risk of falls uh, may cause us to think a little bit more about using abiraterone as a first uh, line agent. So how do we minimize the side effects associated with enzalutamide? Uh, you can decrease the dose, uh, especially you want to think about that if you're using with another uh, 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 type of uh, inhibitor that may alter uh, levels of SIP agents. Uh, you need to consider uh, uh, the seizure threshold issue and bupropion, which is Welbutrin. Uh, patients on that uh, you need to be aware of. And finally, uh, dose holds uh, can help prior to restarting uh, this. So uh, the half-life of enzalutamide is eight to nine days. Take that into account when you're thinking about side effects. So which patients would we consider this in? It's FDA approved for metastatic CRPC before and after chemotherapy. It's also been approved for uh, M0, M0 CRPC, so essentially asymptomatic PSA rising castration resistant prostate cancer, as well as uh, metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer. Uh, fatigue is an issue. 
there are rare seizure issues, and one needs to be careful about these CNS uh, types of side effects. Which patients are poor candidates? Uh, you can see the list here. Patients who already have significant fatigue, advanced age, and a history of seizure strokes or falls. So apalutamide has a very similar mechanism of action uh, as, as, as enzalutamide. Uh, there were, was a slightly increased risk of hypothyroidism uh, in, in this Spartan trial that you need to be aware of. Uh, Daralutamide, uh, has, uh, the trials have recently come out. FDA approval is pending. Uh, we can talk about when that might happen, uh, but there may be some advantages to this drug because of this less penetration of the blood-brain barrier. So which agent should go first in advanced disease? There's really minimal da data uh, guide, uh, to guide us choosing between abiraterone and enzalutamide. I think uh, uh, many medical oncologists uh, uh, that are experts in this area would lean more toward abiraterone as a first, uh, uh, first agent. Um, just from a cost standpoint and a tolerability standpoint. Uh, however, there may be specific indications for enzalutamide uh, using this first. There are toxicity considerations to think about when you're looking at your patients. Uh, and there are unique situations that you may not want to use one of these agents. Uh, for example, patient with rapid disease progression, significant symptoms, or visceral disease, one would want to consider docetaxel. Uh, or even if uh, a biopsy demonstrated a neuroendocrine uh, small cell variant, may want to consider etoposide or cisplatinum. And these are expensive drugs. So take-home points. Uh, enzalutamide uh, and the similar drugs uh, with this, these are androgen receptor signaling inhibitors. Uh, they are approved for pre- and post-chemotherapy. Contraindication in med, contraindicated in men with a seizure history and just be aware of the fatigue, uh, seizure risk, risk and hypertension, uh, as well as falls you see in this. So you want to be careful about this drug in older men. Abiraterone, uh, androgen biosynthesis inhibitor, binds to P450 CYP17 gene, irreversibly inhibits it. Uh, it's, again, castration-resistant prostate cancer pre- and post-chemo. Uh, you can also use this in metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. It's given with prednisone. Uh, these are the side effects we talked about, hypokalemia, hypertension. And it's preferred in these kinds of patients with a seizure history and severe baseline fatigue. OK, so that's the end of uh, this talk. Uh, if we could go ahead and bring the next, next one up. So we're going to launch into the uh, next uh, discussion, which is really looking at uh, these chemotherapy drugs. And the reason that it's important for us as urologists to know about this is that these are being used uh, more commonly earlier in the disease. Uh, with uh, metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, uh, as was mentioned earlier, the, the charted trial and the validation trials really suggest that docetaxel can be used 
for men with metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, uh, so we need to be aware of some of the issues surrounding the use of these drugs. So we'll go to our um, ARS, question seven, if you'll pull your phones out. So which of the following is incorrect regarding the use of taxanes for patients with CRPC? Uh, the tropic trial demonstrated improved overall survival rates with cabazitaxel as compared to mitoxantrone. Uh, B is either cabazitaxel or docetaxel can be used uh, after prior docetaxel. C, cabazitaxel has an equivalent response rate at 20 versus 25. And uh, D, neuropathy and tearing side effects are increased in cabazitaxel as compared to docetaxel. So we'll be able to answer all of these questions at the end of this lecture. Good. Uh, generally, uh, the majority of individuals uh, uh, got the correct answer. Okay. So uh, there are two approved chemotherapeutics, uh, docetaxel, which was the first, and cabazitaxel. We'll talk about the mechanisms of action, these drugs, clinical states for use. Uh, we'll discuss some of the comorbidities of concern and, and special situations to, uh, to use platinum and indeed other agents. And we'll briefly touch on biomarkers uh, for response to chemotherapy. So, this is a 63-year-old with a Gleason's 9 cancer, a history of radiation therapy, developed a rising PSA shortly after treatment, uh, got androgen deprivation therapy. Uh, the PSA lately began rising rapidly with a doubling time of three months and now presents with new bone pain, uh, multiple osteoblastic lesions, uh, five or six in the spine, and his PSA is 56 now. So, uh, in this situation, what might be our first option? So, uh, realize that these chemotherapy agents uh, are generally applied uh, later in the disease, especially with the more, the broader use of the uh, oral agents that are available. These are both uh, taxane chemotherapies, uh, both docetaxel and cabazitaxel. Uh, they bind tubulin in promote the assembly uh, and promote the assembly of tubulin into microtubules so essentially this results in uh, inhibition of mitosis the first drug to, that was approved for uh, castration resistant prostate cancer and I remember when this occurred uh, was docetaxel and it led to a two-month improvement in survival in these patients and at the time you know Prior to that, really, all we had was mitoxantrone. It was really a, pr a profound uh, discovery. So that led to its approval. Uh, TAX-327 was a follow-up trial that looked at uh, weekly versus uh, every three weeks. Uh, there was a slight improvement in giving it every three weeks. Now, there are a number of side effects associated uh, with this drug. Um, these include fatigue. Uh, nail changes are important in these patients. And uh, nail care is, is critical when, you're, uh, when patients are being placed on chemotherapy. Sensory neuropathy can occur in these patients and is common with the more extended use of these drugs, uh, using a cold uh, a pack, cold stockings in these patients can minimize uh, the, the neuropathy issues. Uh, 
there are also issues uh, with um, uh, tearing uh, and sometimes uh, placing uh, uh, ducts or uh, stents in the tear ducts uh, can minimize this. Uh, there are fluid issues as well with patients getting docetaxel. So it's important to be uh, uh, aware of these. Generally, we see these in, in more advanced uh, castration-resistant prostate cancer where they're getting multiple courses. Uh, they're much more minimal in the uh, hormone-sensitive uh, prostate cancer state. So who is the ideal patient for docetaxel? Symptomatic metastatic CRPC, um, rapidly progressive disease, Generally, uh, we would use after one second generation uh, androgen pathway inhibitor has been used. And uh, as I mentioned, in the charted situation, uh, it's being used earlier in the disease. Uh, be aware that the side effects uh, tend to be it's better tolerated in this, uh, this group of patients, in part because they have a better performance status. So performance status is critical for these types of patients. Uh, be aware of the volume overload and congestive heart failure risk. The, uh, there is this peripheral neuropathy, which we mentioned. Uh, it's uh, important to monitor liver function tests. There is an increased in arrhythmia, so be aware of patients with coronary artery disease. Uh, and these drugs uh, are often uh, given in associated, association with dexamethasone, uh, which can create issues in brittle diabetics. Now, if docetaxel fails, uh, are there other options that we can consider for these patients? And a number of years ago, uh, there was uh, a drug, a cabazitaxel, uh, that is biochemically related to docetaxel uh, that was developed. Now, when you think back to your biochemistry, these two drugs look pretty similar. Here's docetaxel, here's cabazitaxel. Uh, structurally, they look very similar. But there's an important change here, and that is the addition of these methyl groups. And what this does is it causes a steric change uh, in this structure such that it's no longer to be able to be secreted uh, outside the tumor cell as easily. Uh, so this steric inhibition causes retention of the drug, and that's why it's more active uh, than docetaxel in this advanced state. So the TROPIC trial uh, was the first post-docetaxel therapy trial looking at uh, cabazitaxel and it demonstrated uh, an improvement in survival of these patients. But frankly, uh, at 25 uh, meters squared, uh, it's, a, it's a rough drug. If you look at the side effects associated with this, uh, the, the fatigue, uh, diarrhea, uh, febrile neutropenia were, were really significant uh, in these patients. Because of that, uh, the company then undertook a low, uh, essentially an equivalency trial looking at 25 versus 20 meters squared. This was the Proselica trial. And it was essentially an equiv equivalency trial. They found that there was a similar response rate uh, by dropping the dose of the medicine, but the side effects were much more tolerable in these individuals. So cabazitaxel is approved for docetaxel failures and should be considered in these patients. At 20, it's much less toxic than 25. Uh, there are similar cancer responses. Some of the side effects include neutropenia, diarrhea, peripheral neuropathy, nail, nail disorders, and fatigue. GMCSF are very important with regard to uh, these patients. They need prophylactic growth factors. 
and some patients actually tolerate cabazitaxel better than docetaxel. Uh, there was a, a Firstana trial which suggested uh, that cabazitaxel may be used as an initial therapy rather than docetaxel. So it's important to realize that there are situations where chemotherapy with docetaxel may not necessarily be uh, in indica indicated. And one of the significant uh, ones is when you begin to get a lot of liver metastases. Uh, another is extremely bulky lymph nodes, uh, a low PSA in the setting of a very high volume disease, and also situations where they're primarily lytic rather than blastic bone metastases. So this is a case of a, a patient uh, who was placed on Lupron, uh, intermittent Lupron therapy for a number of years. Uh, he began developing a rising PSA, got abiraterone with a very transient uh, PSA decrease, uh, began increasing thereafter, uh, appropriately received docetaxel at this point, had a PSA response, uh, and then presented with increased bone pain, even though his PSA uh, had not increased. And a biopsy revealed small cell carcinoma in this patient. So realize that these so-called androgen-indifferent castration-resistant prostate cancer variants, as a primary cancer, uh, they're very rare. Uh, I've seen them. Uh, they're very difficult for these patients to manage. Uh, after uh, androgen receptor targeted therapy, it's much more common. So in patients that receive abiraterone or enzalutamide, um, they're further down the line, up to 25% of these patients will begin to develop these neuroendocrine variants. There are a number of pathologic uh, subtypes, uh, six of these, six or seven of these. Uh, we're now beginning to genetically classify uh, these patients as well. Uh, but realize there's some that look like small cell carcinoma, others uh, more neuroendocrine. And when you do a biopsy uh, in this type of patient, uh, with uh, a widely metastatic disease, low PSA, it's important to think about staining for synaptophysin as well as chromogranin. And this is shown on the right here. This is a stain for chromogranin A from a liver biopsy. So these are typical, typically androgen receptor negative, uh, and that, again, explains the, the lack of PSA secretion. And one that wants to think about platinum-based chemotherapy in this situation. Now, the rationale for doing a biopsy on these patients uh, in, in this kind of situation has become even more important. And this was really stunning data that was presented uh, several years ago. And we'll hear a little bit more about this in, in depth, but I just wanted to introduce this concept that it was found several years ago that 23% of patients that have metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer have alterations in, in DNA repair. Uh, the majority of these, as shown in the uh, light brown here, were in the BRCA2 gene, which if you think about it, uh, that is, it's, it was really, it should, maybe it should have been called the PRCA2 gene. At any rate, the, uh, this has led to an important discovery uh, because these types of patients may be uh, more uh, susceptible to PARP inhibition. So you can use a biopsy to, to direct therapy. Furthermore, a subset of patients with these advanced cancers may have a mismatch repair gene defect, and pembrolizumab is being used for that, so these, uh, these patients. Uh, it's been FDA approved as well. So I want to touch uh, briefly on performance status, and when you think about 
issues that uh, predict outcomes with chemotherapy and advanced prostate cancer, performance status clearly plays a very important role. This is a uh, looking at a prognostic nomogram that was developed several years ago. Uh, one can see there are a number of uh, aspects that are taken into account, alkaline phosphatase, um, hematocrit, uh, neutropenia. Uh, but if you look here, I wanted to point this out, this is a, a ECOG status. So this is looking at the performance status of the patient. And if you look at the uh, weight that's given this, it's really one of the major prognostic features. So you can get a lot of information by just looking at the patient in your clinic as to how they're going to do. And to remind you of uh, the ECOG performance status for the residents uh, in, in, the, in the audience, uh, this is a very testable uh, type of question. Uh, performance status, uh, fully active is zero, restricted to physically uh, strenuous activity, uh, restricted in strenuous activity is one, um, essentially uh, ambulatory uh, and capable of all uh, self-care but unable to carry out any work activities uh, is ECOG performance status two. Uh, you can see individuals that spend greater than 50% of their time uh, in a bed or chair uh, are three, uh, four is uh, completely disabled and, and ECOG status five. Uh, I always find it interesting they uh, include this. Uh, it means you're dead. So uh, I'll briefly touch on biomarkers because this is really where the field is going. And I just wanted to start by pointing out, uh, looking at this uh, uh, study. Uh, this was actually for a, a drug, Cabo, uh, uh, okay. we'll call it Cabo. It's a VEGF and a MET uh, inhibitor. And uh, these patients with advanced prostate cancer were uh, given uh, this drug. And this is very typical of any sort of uh, phase three or phase two drug uh, that was, uh, that's been utilized. You'll see a response rate, uh, and this is actually looking at a PSA decrease. Um, you'll, you'll see a response rate in a, uh, a population of these patients, but uh, there are a lot of patients that don't have a change at all or a very minimal change. So the question is, can you take a piece of tissue and identify those patients who are more likely to be responders? And the question is, we are beginning to understand some of these, uh, these markers. And I'm sure you all have heard about this androgen receptor splice variants, these ARV7s. I just wanted to briefly describe uh, what this is. So if you look at the structure of the androgen receptor, uh, it consists of a, a, binding, a, binding, a terminal binding domain, a DNA binding domain, a hinge region, and then a ligand binding domain. And what, when you think about these splice variants, essentially what they've done uh, is they, they've uh, lacked this ligand binding domain. So they're able to bind to the DNA. They don't need androgen in order to activate uh, the, the receptor. And one would think about uh, the, you know, the enzalutamide and the other drugs that we use in this situation, one would anticipate that they probably wouldn't work in these patients uh, just because, uh, again, those rely on ligand binding. So this was a study looking at PSA responses according to the uh, ARV7 uh, status. And this is a PSA decrease. And what I want to point out here is in these enzalutamide patients that if you are ARV7 uh, negative, uh, that you're much more likely to have a, a response to 
uh, enzalutamide, but if you're uh, variant positive, your PSA is much less likely to decrease. So we, uh, the, this is being used commercially. It's available commercially. Uh, several companies uh, are, uh, have uh, this, uh, this um, test available. Uh, and it may be utilized to help select those patients that might do better with oral agents or, or chemotherapy. So uh, take-home points for this lecture. Docetaxel remains the first-line chemotherapy uh, for metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. In the modern era, it's generally being used after uh, oral inhibitors. And one thing I want to point out is that generally if you fail uh, with one of these uh, oral agents, uh, it's often worthwhile switching to, to chemotherapy rather than trying another oral, oral agent afterwards. Uh, in the modern era, the response rates appear to be very minimal. For example, trying uh, enzalutamide immediately after, after abiraterone. Uh, I emphasize that the ECOG performance status and comorbidities are important, uh, and they can help guide appropriate selection uh, for patients with taxane-based therapies. Cabazitaxel, uh, 20 milligrams, is not inferior to 25, but it's much less toxic. Again, cabazitaxel is generally used uh, after uh, docetaxel failures. And there is a role for platinum-based chemotherapy in these patients with uh, these neuroendocrine small cell uh, cancers. Biopsies are important in these patients. They can also help direct uh, therapy with other specific uh, agents. And finally, that uh, the ARV7 may be a mechanism of resistance, and it can help guide therapy in these patients. Well, thank you very much, and uh, I think we'll keep moving and save our questions for the end. Thank you very much. So I think we're going to talk about the bottom one, the radiopharmaceuticals, very bottom one. This one right here. So uh, I get to give, uh, I guess, probably the most uh, boring but most practical talk and then the most interesting talk. Uh, nobody likes talking about bone health, but unfortunately it is a huge issue for our patients and we need to be very aware of it when we're treating our patients with uh, various different forms of, of hormone ablation. So these, these are my uh, uh, disclosures. Uh, clearly we are discussing products that are made by Janssen. Uh, I don't think any of the others are actually on this. Uh, others obviously contributed to this talk. So uh, the, there is a clear clinical relevance. I think everybody in the room is aware of this for bone health and castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Uh, bone loss clearly occurs. Uh, the median uh, age of patients who have castrate-resistant prostate cancer is uh, dead on uh, with the uh, age at which a patient's bones start to become osteoporotic anyway. And, and androgen deprivation basically accelerates this process. So we have increased risk of osteopenia, osteoporosis, and fracture, uh, and they lose about 2 to 4 percent of their bone mineral density uh, within the first uh, year. And the fracture risk increases uh, proportionally. And so, uh, and, and in addition, metastatic disease, as we all know, for prostate cancer ends up in the bones, which further weakens them and further increases the risk of fracture. So these are the uh, issues associated with bone loss. The risk factors, uh, risk factors include age, uh, previous fracture, uh, parental history of uh, hip fractures, uh, uh, and uh, I think we underappreciate that, that uh, probably like most uh, quote-unquote diseases, osteoporosis does run in families. 
low body weight, which probably reflects poor nutrition, uh, current cigarette smoking, and excessive alcohol consumption. Uh, risk factors which are particularly relevant to our patient population include androgen deprivation therapy, uh, GnRH suppression, glucocorticoids, radio, uh, radiation therapy, and also, importantly, there are other drugs like proton pump inhibitors. Can I have the, the time reset? It's going to be distracting the whole time if it's blinking red. So this was, this was a slide that was shown previously by Dr. Gerard. Uh, basically, multivariate analysis has clearly shown an association between, uh, 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 between uh, risk of fracture and androgen deprivation therapy. I think importantly, there cl clearly appears to be a dose, uh, a dose response, so less androgen deprivation therapy does increase the risk, but as you uh, increase the amount or duration of the androgen deprivation therapy, so does the risk of uh, having any fracture, and in particularly fractures resulting in hospitalization. Like in many studies, you see the stepwise uh, accumulation of fractures, uh, and that's just because people are imaging and looking for them. But ones where patients end up in the hospital are clearly clinically significant. Uh, the overall survival of a fracture actually does predict uh, how long a patient's going to be alive. So this is from the time of androgen deprivation, and then the patient developed the fracture during the course of treatment. And what you can see is patients who developed a, a, a skeletal fracture, much shorter life expectancy than those who didn't. Uh, so the idea that once we put someone on androgen deprivation, we can work to prevent that fracture risk should improve uh, the life expectancy of these patients on androgen deprivation therapy. So the first thing to always remember is get a baseline. So bone mineral density scans, DEXA scans, uh, are, I, at least in my practice, I obtain right when the patient goes on androgen deprivation therapy, and then I repeat it uh, during the course of their treatment. Uh, osteopenia is a T-score of uh, you negative know, 1.0 to negative 2.5. Osteoporosis, which is what we worry about the most, is when it's less than 2.5. And you repeat it every one to two years. Uh, there are blood tests that can be obtained, uh, calcium levels, creatinine, and vitamin D. Uh, I think these should be obtained on our patients. Uh, they are uh, important, uh, and many of uh, you in the audience, like me, are getting a little older. I had my vitamin D level checked after I broke my ankle, and I was surprised to find that it was low. So uh, the important thing is to try and go ahead and check it, uh, I guess, uh, even on patients in their, in their uh, 50s. Uh, also, uh, smoking cessation, I think it's hard to find any physician who doesn't argue against smoking cessation. I would say fracture risk is probably one of the least things we're concerned about, but uh, I, it is another reason to stop smoking. Uh, ETOH, moderation, and weight-bearing exercises, I think, are particularly important. So the guidelines uh, for the AUA state that clinicians should offer preventive treatment, that being supplemental calcium and vitamin D, uh, for, uh, to prevent fractures and skeletal-related events in patients who have castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Now, it was amazing to me how long we spent on the uh, guidelines committee discussing the dosage of uh, vitamin D and calcium. Unfortunately, there are real no recommendations. Uh, the National Osteoporosis Guidelines basically state for men over the age of 50 uh, that you should get 1,200 uh, milligrams daily, and for vitamin D, about uh, 800 to 1,000 uh, units daily. The, the, uh, the dose does matter, okay? So this is a meta-analysis, uh, and these, uh, I'm going to have trouble reading them, but these are the patients at the top that have, uh, you know, higher doses of vitamin D. I think this is over 1,000. 
uh, and these are uh, at risk of uh, fracture, non-vertebral fractures and hip fractures. And there's clearly a risk reduction. But for lower doses, this is about 400, uh, uh, there is no actual benefit. So if you're going to give somebody a dose of vitamin D, uh, it's important to give them the higher dose. So calcium alone does not prevent uh, uh, bone mineral loss. Uh, there is conflicting data on calcium and uh, cerebrovascular, uh, on, uh, cerebrovascular disease and the risk of fatal prostate cancer. Uh, you know, it, it, remember those ads we used to say, we got milk, and people were making uh, fun of, uh, not fun, it's not quite the right word, we're saying that patients uh, were at risk for developing prostate cancer if they drank too much milk. Uh, so there's a lot of conflicting data out there, which is very difficult to separate. Uh, particularly important to supplement when treating with zolindronic acid and denosumab. We're going to go through that data in a minute, but that can really drive someone's calcium very low, uh, and so you need uh, to absolutely supplement at that point in time. Better absorption with divided doses, so they shouldn't take all their calcium in the morning. They should try and divide it up during the day. And uh, calcium citrate absorbs better than calcium carbonate, though I would argue that the, the goal is to get them to take something. So uh, the next aspect is that clinicians may choose either denosumab or zolindronic acid when selecting a preventive treatment for skeletal-related events for patients with bone, bony metastases. So uh, bisphosphonates inhibit bone reabsorption. It's given as an IV infusion, 4 milligrams Q4 weeks. Zolindronic acid is the only bisphosphonate to demonstrate a benefit in metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer by decreasing the number of skeletal-related events. There are other bisphosphonates available. Very frequently, patients are on them. I think, and we're going to go through this, there are indications to put patients on uh, bis other bisphosphonates when they are uh, being treated for castrate-resistant prostate cancer. But if the goal is to uh, decrease the risk of a skeletal-related event, specifically in patients who have castrate-resistant disease, zolindronic acid is the only one to demonstrate a benefit. And the other ones have been examined. So it's not a data-free zone. There's clearly toxicity. Osteonecrosis of the, daw, of the jaw, incredibly important for them to have a dental exam beforehand. Do not put these patients on this drug until you've had a dental exam, if nothing more than for medical legal reasons. Uh, hypocalcemia, and you really need to monitor patients' cal calcium. Uh, nephrotoxicity, we're going to talk about that a little bit. Uh, you, you have to reduce the dose uh, if the patient has impaired renal function, and it's one of the reasons why rank ligand inhibitors, I think, are a little easier to use in patients that have impaired renal function. And one of the primary side effects, remember, is patients can develop some flu-like symptoms. So this is the uh, data on, or the recommendation on reducing the dose if somebody has uh, impaired renal function. Uh, for patients with a creatinine clearance of over 60, uh, the regular dose is used. Uh, ensure patients are adequately hydrated. I think that's probably good for any infusion. Uh, slower infusion times have been shown to improve renal clearance and therefore reduce the risk of toxicity. So if the uh, creatinine clearance is 50 to 60, uh, you go down to 3.5 milligrams, 40 to 49, 3.3, 30 to 39, 3.0 and under 30, just like MRIs, they're not recommended. So denosumab is a rank ligand inhibitor. So it's a receptor activated by the nuclear factor uh, NF-kappa-B. It inhibits osteoclast-mediated bone destruction. So instead of stabilize, it stabilizes bone in a slightly different mechanism than zolindronic acid. It's given as a sub-Q injection, again, the 120 milligrams, the same Q4-week interval. 
Uh, and its toxicity is, again, osteonecrosis of the jaw, and that's why, again, you need to have the dental exam first. And again, fairly profound hypoglycemia, excuse me, hypocalcemia. This is actually worse than it is with uh, zoledronic acid. So this is osteonecrosis of the jaw. If people haven't actually seen it. Uh, the exposed bone in the uh, maxillofacial area that occurs and associated with de dental surgery and can occur spontaneously, though you often wonder where these patients had an underlying defect that just wasn't detected. Uh, and uh, it basically the big problem is it doesn't heal, uh, which is very difficult to manage. Uh, so uh, after uh, uh, if the working diagnosis, no evidence of healing after six weeks of appropriate evaluation in dental care, and no evidence of metastatic disease, which I don't know. I've never actually seen metastatic disease to the jaw where like this. I mean, I think if I saw this, I, I would know exactly what it was. Risk factors are cancer, radiation therapy, glucocorticoids, poor dental hygiene, uh, poor diet, uh, dental work and trauma. Uh, again, alcohol use, tobacco use seems to be the risk factor for everything. Coagulopathy, chemotherapy, and unfortunately many of these patients have been exposed to chemotherapy as well. Infection, and then lastly, the bisphosphonate or denosumab uh, therapy. So excellent oral, oral hygiene, really emphasizing to these patients that they need to brush their teeth, visit the dentist, take care of their, 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 their teeth, limit alcohol and tobacco use, obtain a dental assessment like I emphasized uh, previously, if possible, uh, have all the dental procedures done before the patient has uh, started their therapy. Uh, encourage the patient to visit the dentist every six months. I mean, this is essentially the recommendation for everybody, uh, but I think a lot of us don't do as good a job of visiting the, visiting the dentist as we should. Uh, avoid extraction, like really dental hygiene is good, dental surgery bad once they're on the, on the drug. And then warn the patients about ill-fitting dentures. Obviously, as some of these patients have their disease progress, uh, they can lose weight. The dentures cannot fit as well as they have in the past. And it's important to emphasize them that loose dentures can actually cause uh, more problems than just having trouble chewing your food. If it develops, uh, you usually hold the bisphosphonates or denosubab until the site has healed or stabilized. One of the problems is, is that the bone really does change as a result of this therapy. It's not like when you stop the drug, it, it goes away after, you know, three to three or four weeks. It, it's pretty stable in this changed state. Uh, current treatment is uh, empiric, antibiotics, oral rinses, pain control, obviously very important, and a limited deb debridement. I would not send it this, these patients to anybody who hasn't dealt with it previously. Uh, there are dentists in your area that unfortunately have had to deal with this, uh, particularly people uh, that are affiliated with cancer centers. So at our institution, we actually have a, a uh, oral a surgery group, and that's who we send these people to. Uh, cases refractory to conservative management may uh, benefit from investigative therapies, surgical treatment, or hyperbaric oxygen therapy. I mean, it's hard to argue against hyperbaric oxygen therapy. It's, it's hard to find. Uh, I find that it tends to be a catch-all treatment for things that we have trouble treating. So uh, hypocalcemia is one of the biggest side effects of these treatments. So denosumab, uh, probably reflecting the fact that it's a stronger medicine, and we're going to look at some of the data around that, uh, has a higher hypocalcemia rate of 13% versus 6%. So this is actually different. Osteonecrosis of the jaw is also more common in denosumab than zolendronic acid, though not statistically significant. Uh, I would say that simply just reflects the sample size and the event rate. So there is a randomized trial comparing the two, denosumab and zolendronic acid. Uh, longer time with denosumab to a first scale related event compared to IV zolendronic acid. More significant hypocalcemia, which is just I highlighted. Similar rates of osteonecrosis, though I suspect it's probably slightly higher with denosumab. 
No difference in overall survival or time to disease progression. These are not treatments for prostate cancer per se in terms of increasing life expectancy. They're there in order to decrease the likelihood of fractures and therefore allow the patients to do better. Uh, slightly superior efficacy for denosumab uh, and therefore probably should be the first option. Also a little easier to give because you don't have to worry about renal function. So this is the Kaplan-Meier curve. What you can see in the blue is the denosumab at the top. The bottom is zolindronic acid. And I, I think that's not only statistically significant, they think that's a clinically significant improvement in uh, risk of fractures. What about uh, other uh, bone modifying agents in other disease states? These were not discussed in the CRPC guidelines, but I think it's important to recognize them. So uh, castrate-sensitive prostate cancer. So before we we're talking about castrate-resistant, now we're talking about castrate-sensitive prostate cancer. Zolindronic acid was found not to increase the time to a first-scale-related event versus placebo. That was Matt Smith's study. So essentially, there's a Kaplan-Meier curves, which essentially completely overlap one another, okay? This is non-metastatic castrate-resistant disease. Denosumab found to to actually to increase the bone metastasis-free survival versus placebo, this whole seed and soil idea. So if you can go ahead and make the bone less likely to uh, uh, support a metastatic disease by using these drugs, uh, maybe you'll decrease the rate of metastatic disease. And it actually was a positive result, no improvement in overall survival. But the problem is this toxicity associated with the drug. So at the end of the day, when the FDA re reviewed this, they believed that the toxicity of the drug was too high for this perceived benefit. I mean, if there was a benefit in overall survival, I bet it would have gone through. So if they don't improve uh, overall survival, what about preventing bone loss? Uh, so it, the, uh, one of the ways to do this, and the way that's actually recommended in the guidelines, is actually to do what's called a FRAX uh, test. You can do this online. It's an algorithm which is uh, produced by, not for prostate cancer, but just for general uh, use for patients, individuals who are at risk for bone loss. Uh, it's an online calculator, and treatment is recommended if the 10-year probability of a hip fracture is greater than 3%, or the 10-year probability of a major osteoporosis-related fracture is greater than 20%. However, using, I think this is a useful tool. The problem is once all of our patients are on uh, uh, androgen deprivation therapy for a year or two, they all are positive essentially for the FRAX. So the concept behind this is uh, increased bone mineral density will decrease the fracture risk, and we have uh, various agents that are different than the doses that we were using in patients who had metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. So much, uh, uh, you know, one dose of zolindronic acid a year, alidronate and denosumab, they've all been approved in this, uh, in, this, uh, in this disease, I won't even call it disease state, this state of osteoporosis. So in conclusion, bone health uh, issues uh, lead to uh, both bone loss and increased risk of metastatic disease. Patients, uh, I think actually this is a little weak, I should change this. Uh, patients with castrate-resistant prostate cancer, they shouldn't be offered calcium and vitamin D supplementation. You should insist on it. I mean, you do not want these patients to develop fractures. I don't have data in here, but, you know, 20% of our patients uh, develop fractures, uh, and I think we don't often see them. I think the medical oncologists and the palliative care people are seeing them in the end, uh, and many of us uh, have had family members with, uh, or elderly family members who have broken hips, uh, and uh, that's a, 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 a lethal event in somebody that's old enough. 
Uh, patients with uh, bone metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer should be offered uh, zolindronic acid and denosumab. <clears throat> Again, the, the idea behind using the denosumab is you don't have to worry about the renal issues, and it's slightly better in terms of the uh, risk of uh, skill-related events. Uh, but zolindronic acid is a fine drug, and if that's what your institution has decided, you shouldn't worry about it. Uh, beware of hypocalcemia and osteonecrosis of the jaw. Patients on androgen deprivation should have a baseline, an ongoing assessment for risk of fracture, and then you should consider bone-modifying agents uh, on these patients. So then uh, lastly, radiopharmaceuticals. So this was discussed earlier, uh, radium-223. It uh, mimics calcium and therefore targets the bone, and it therefore forms complexes uh, that, uh, that, uh, that then uh, with, it has a radiopharmaceutical. That radiopharmaceutical then kills the cancer cells that are in close proximity to the remodeling bone. Uh, one of the nice things about radium-223 is it has a very short uh, penetration uh, due to its wavelength, and as a result has uh, less uh, toxicity, specifically bone marrow suppression. It induces double straight uh, DNA breaks in the cancer cells, which leads to, uh, obviously, cell death. So this is a schematic. What you can see is the, the, this is where the bone is being remodeled. This is where the radium-223 tends to deposit. And then the, uh, the, the distribution of the uh, alpha particles uh, prevents uh, bone marrow toxicity. Uh, this is the randomized trial that got it approved. These are patients that have confirmed uh, metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer, at least two bone mets, no visceral metastases, okay, none at all. Uh, and uh, they can either be pre- or post-docetaxel. So one of the things I emphasize to people over and over again, I'm going to talk about immunotherapy next, uh, is symptomatic. Symptomatic. That's the key thing. Not before or after docetaxel. They have to have symptomatic disease, okay? Uh, and they were randomized to either radium-223 uh, or placebo. And just as a sidelight, lymph node uh, disease is not visceral metastases, okay? So radium-223 had significant prolonged overall survival. So at the top, you have the radium-223. At the bottom, you have the placebo. And this placebo was placebo plus the standard of care. So these patients still got treatment. They just uh, they got the same standard of treatment in both arms. It significantly uh, prolonged the time to first sym symptomatic skill-related event. Again, uh, the green is the patients that received the radium-223. The blue are the patients who did not. Again, unfortunately, they come together in a fairly, uh, fairly rapid, I mean, this is just a, about a year and a half. Again, I think this reflects how aggressive uh, castrate-resistant prostate cancer is. So in summary, uh, this is the standard. Patients should offer uh, radium-223 to patients who had good performance status, symptomatic bony metastases, no known visceral metastases, and it can be given either in the pre- or post-docetaxel uh, state. Uh, the expert opinion also stated that uh, patients who uh, had not received docetaxel but had poor performance status uh, when it was directly related to the symptoms of the bony metastases could also receive radium-223 since it's very well tolerated. Uh, I think one of the other things that's not in this is people have been very interested in giving the radium-223 in combination with other drugs like abiraterone and enzalutamide in patients that had a visceral metastases. The idea is that the radium-223 would attack the bone mets and then the abiraterone or enzalutamide would attack the lymph node or, or the uh, visceral metastases. And those studies, unfortunately, did not pan out and did not show a benefit. Okay, so can I go on to my last, my last talk? I'm going to try and do this a little faster so we have a little time for questions at the end. Uh, 
Okay. Okay. So immunotherapy and future approaches. So the same disclosures. Uh, I, I'm going to briefly go through the M0 CRPC. I think that's been very well covered. I just have a few things I want to emphasize. We'll get on to the immunotherapy and then talk a little bit about future future approaches. I think this has been well uh, covered. So this is cast, it's, uh, it castrate M0 state, no metastatic disease, castrate-resistant prostate cancer. We now have three trials, all looking at antiangiogens, all demonstrating a, a, a decrease in metastasis-free survival. Uh, all essentially had exactly the same inclusion criteria, rising PSA with castrate testosterone. Make sure to check the patient's testosterone before you start, before you believe they have castrate-resistant disease. Negative imaging uh, uh, and uh, a rapid PSA doubling time. Though importantly, even though this was included in all the trials, a rapid PSA doubling time of less than 10, 10 months, uh, that's not on the label. So you don't have to calculate it in order to use, use the treatment. I would argue that the patient whose PSA is going up very slowly, you probably don't have to worry about as much as the patient whose PSA is going up every month you see them. Uh, again, the primary endpoint was metastasis-free survival. So uh, uh, <coughs> these are the Kaplan-Meier curves. I think everybody has seen them. Again, to emphasize, they all show a benefit in terms of metastasis-free survival, no benefit yet in terms of overall survival. We'll follow these out and see what happens. Same benefit. It's striking the improvement in the metastasis-free survival. I mean, this is a, a two-year improvement, which is fairly significant. I mean, patients who have bony metastases, we just talked about how we want to prevent skeletal-related events. Best way to prevent skeletal-related events is probably to prevent metastatic disease. Again, no benefit yet in terms of overall survival, but it's getting, it's trending there. Uh, you know, it, it's not a dramatic difference, but we'll see as we follow these patients farther out. And this is a darlinamide uh, study that was just published, again, showing the same benefit and, again, the same issue with the overall survival. I think it's always striking the hazard ratios on all these trials are almost always at, at 0.7, which is uh, interesting. Uh, and uh, this one, you know, so the p-value is less than 0.05. I think because of uh, multiple testing, that was not acceptable p-value for statistical significance. But I think they're all trending in that direction, which I think reflects the fact that if you prevent metastatic disease, uh, you're going to make patients live longer. I think we all know that in intuitively, and there's very good data out there from a trial called ICECAP, which actually demonstrates that metastatic disease is a good surrogate endpoint for overall survival with patients with castrate-resistant prostate cancer. But this is the one thing I wanted to, to, to emphasize, and, and I want to I be clear about this. We don't know this is true yet because we haven't compared these treatments head-to-head, -head, okay? But darlutamide, uh, you know, a, a very similar uh, discontinuation uh, of, of, of treatment between darlutamide and placebo. But for apalutamide and enzalutamide, there was a slightly higher risk of discontinuation of the treatment. There was no increase of falls and fractures with darlutamide, which it was seen with Enza and Appy. And again, this could be because of uh, issues. We talked about the issues with seizures. I, I, I don't think the, the, I think the falls and particularly the fractures are, could potentially do, be due to CNS uh, effects. So patients fall over and they're more likely to break something. Uh, importantly, there was no difference in grade three toxicity overall between uh, uh, drug and placebo across all three of these. So all of them in the drug arm was about 75%, uh, 75% and in the, uh, in the placebo was around 25%. So this is only one side effect we're talking about. It's not a, uh, you know, in, at the end of the day, every drug has its pluses and minuses. But this is the one difference that at least a lot of people have noticed between the three drugs. So uh, uh, 
in point of fact, let's say your patient has a, a history is, is unstable, you're worried they're going to fall, they're on Coumadin, right? Maybe that's not the patient to put on apalutamide or enzalutamide. Maybe that's the patient to put on darlutamide. Okay, uh, immunotherapy, uh, we're going to talk about uh, several different uh, promising drugs and failed trials. Uh, this is a very complicated slide that sort of outlines uh, the uh, the the, the uh, landscape of immunotherapy for prostate cancer, but basically we have uh, drugs that improve antigen presentation. That's CYPT. That's the only one that's really approved for treatment. We have uh, vaccines like uh, Prosvac, uh, which uh, have not uh, made it into our our, our, our armamentarium. Uh, checkpoint inhibitors like ipilimumab or ipi, and lastly PDL1 inhibitors. So CYPT is the only one, uh, I, I'm going to take that back because uh, uh, I think Pembro is approved for patients that have uh, defects in, uh, in mismatch repair, but that's more a, a global, uh, that's, that's not focused on prostate cancer, that's just focused on disease. And we're going to see more and more treatments like that. But CYPT is the one that's approved for the use in prostate cancer. Uh, so for those of you who are not aware how it works, uh, the uh, uh, antigen-presenting cell is uh, removed from the patient. Usually you have to go to a Red Cross center where they can be phoreced. They're then sent to uh, a local facility where the, uh, the, the, the antigen-presenting cell is a pro or the dendritic cell is exposed to prostatic acid phosphatase fused to GMCSF. Uh, the antigen-presenting cell takes up the antigen. The antigen is processed and brought to the surface. The fully activated uh, antigen-presenting cell is uh, now collected. It's sent back to you. You infuse it into the patient. Uh, it activates the T cells uh, and, uh, you know, in theory destroys the cancer. So this is how it actually works. You freeze the patient, sent off to the, to the facility. Uh, they, they produce it. They send it back to you, and then you redo it. It's done three times. So this is the impact trial. This is the landmark trial, metastatic. Uh, uh, minimally symptomatic or asymptomatic. So remember, the radium-223, I emphasize these were patients who had symptomatic disease. These are patients with asymptomatic disease, okay? Uh, and they were either given CYPT or nothing. And then when the patient progressed, they could get a... Uh, uh, w the, the patients that were in the placebo arm, they actually forced these patients. They went ahead and saved some of the product and then reinfused that, what they uh, uh, loosely termed Frovenge, uh, into the patient. Uh, which they believe may have some activity, and I'm going to show you the data. So the, actually, the benefit of the treatment may exceed what the uh, actual trial showed. So what you can see here is there was clearly a benefit. Top is the patients who received CYPT. Bottom is the patients who received placebo. And there was a benefit of approximately four months. No PSA response. So again, emphasize that over and over again. No PSA response in these patients. And I think that's one of the reasons uh, that people are, uh, you know, don't use it as much as maybe we should. Uh, because the patient comes in and their PSA is still elevated and they want to know what's to do next. You rapidly progress to another treatment. I would emphasize to people, somebody tra I, there are so many drugs out there that produce a PSA response and don't show any benefit in terms of overall survival. So I have to, if I had to choose between a PSA response or overall survival, I think not only I, I think everybody in the room would choose the overall uh, response rate. This is what I was talking about earlier. So this was a nice paper uh, that looked at uh, the, the patients who received uh, the CYPT, the patients who received the Frovenge, and then some of the patients didn't receive the Frovenge. And what you can see is uh, the patients, there may be some benefit uh, to the patients who received this uh, frozen product 
uh, that was then reinfused at a later date. And it actually may be that the CYPT had more of a benefit than we would actually uh, uh, indicate. In other words, the placebo wasn't really a placebo. It did have some treatment effect. Adverse effects, I think it mostly it's like having the flu, you know, chills, pyrexia, headache, influenza-like illness. Uh, and uh, how do you treat it? You treat it the way you same treat, you treat this, the flu. I mean, not chicken soup, but, you know, Tylenol, uh, uh, Motrin, et cetera. So the AUA guidelines say that we should offer avaratarone, prednisone, enzalutamide, or CYPT to patients with asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic disease and, and good performance status. So I'm just emphasizing that again, CYPT for people who have asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic disease. So future directions. So uh, this is the ipilutamide study. It was unfortunate that it was uh, a negative trial. Uh, this is a checkpoint inhibitor. Uh, it's an anti-CTLA-4 uh, inhibitor. Uh, it's been approved in melanoma, so it actually works. And so at the top, this is the IPI, and this is the control. And, uh, you know, you look at that, and that's a more dramatic difference than many of the other uh, trials that I've actually shown you. And uh, importantly, uh, where's the p-value? The p-value was 0 0.053. So uh, just on the basis of that, it wasn't approved. I mean, you wonder whether it would have been nicer if, if they had enrolled another 100 patients in each arm, it probably would have been a positive study. You also wonder, remember, uh, uh, we've been emphasizing over and over again the disease burden being an important criteria in terms of understanding who's going to benefit and who's not going to benefit from the disease, uh, particularly in the charter trial. And so if you looked at patients who had a low disease burden, there was a much more dramatic improvement in terms of survival than patients that had a high disease burden. It could be the high disease burden is due to the fact the patients have been treated with multiple agents, so there's a difference in the underlying immune system in the low disease burden versus the high disease. It could be that there's a certain threshold at which the immune system basically cannot take care of the cancer. And if you have enough cells, the immune system can, uh, uh, can actually kill the cancer cells. And therefore, a low disease burden patient may actually respond, whereas a high disease burden might not. Uh, I, I mean, we all know that I didn't present the data, but for CYPT, it appears that patients that have lower disease burden respond much better than patients that have high disease burden. And we also all know that our bodies are constantly fighting off malignancies. Uh, and uh, again, this may be due to this, uh, to this phenomenon. Uh, it was very nicely outlined, the, uh, the DNA repair alterations that we've identified. Uh, this is uh, a rather nice study that found that 23% of tumors have defects in DNA repair. Uh, and this is a study that showed that about 12% of patients who have metastatic disease have germline defects in DNA repair. Why is this important? Because this is going to be a tool that we use to target the right patient for the right treatment. So this is uh, a, a colon cancer study, okay? Uh, people wonder why I'm presenting a colon cancer study. But what you can see is overall survival for the patients who had, were mismatch repair deficient uh, pembrolizumab, which is a PDL1 inhibitor, uh, dramatic improvement in survival compared to patients that were uh, proficient in DNA repair. And you can see here, you know, you can tell right away that there's a difference between the patients who responded or who didn't respond. So these are the ones that had, uh, uh, that it worked, the DNA repair. See all the brown? These are the patients who had defects in DNA repair. You can see a dramatic improvement in survival. So this is a trial looking at uh, PDL1 Pembro in prostate cancer. I don't even want to spend a lot of time at it. No benefit. But take a look at that distribution. 
it's entirely possible that all these patients down here have defects in uh, DNA repair and, and mismatch repair. And it's possible that really what we need to do is identify the patients that are going to respond to that particular treatment. Synthetic lethality, uh, this is the idea of using PARP inhibitors. So basically there's going to be a, a, a break in the DNA. The DNA can go ahead and be repaired. It can become a double-strand break. Uh, and then uh, the normal cell can go ahead and repair that, and a BRCA2 a deficient cell can't. So this leads to cell lethality. And by using a PARP inhibitor, you can drive the patients that have uh, uh, DNA repair defects. So you block this with the PARP inhibitor. The patient is forced to, the cell is forced to try and repair itself through a double brand, a double strand break repair. If they're deficient in DNA repair, it leads to cell lethality. And this has been shown in prostate cancer. This is a rather nice study by uh, DeBono uh, where they took a PARP inhibitor, uh, a Laparib, and they found if you broke the patients down into those who had uh, genomic defects in DNA repair, they did very well. If they had normal DNA repair, the PARP didn't work at all, okay? If you work at either uh, 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 overall survival or progression. This is progression. This is overall survival. The last thing, which I can go through quickly, is something that's near and dear to my heart is integrating systemic therapy with surgery. A little bit of a smorgasbord of, uh, of topics here in the future, but I think this is important and really sort of affects us as urologists. So end-stage disease, we improve survival about two to four months. Metastatic disease, it's in castrate-sensitive disease, we go ahead and improve survival 12 to 24 months. The question is, if we treat patients in the perioperative period, can we actually cure them of their cancer? I mean, this emphasis, this idea that patients with low-volume disease are going to have a better response than patients with high-volume disease because we can go ahead and eradicate the disease, I think, is important. We've done a whole series of studies uh, with my colleague, Mary Ellen Taplin, multi-institutional, not just at my institution, but at many other institutions. I think they have them listed on a, on a separate slide, but Johns Hopkins, University of Michigan, University of Washington, uh, University of British Columbia, uh, to name a few, Beth Israel Adignas Medical Center in Boston, taking patients with intermediate and high-risk disease, randomized them to intense systemic therapy versus less intense systemic therapy, and then done surgery on them and saw what we saw. And over and over again, we were trying to assess response to biomarkers. The more intense therapy, better response to biomarkers. More intense therapy, more complete responses, more partial responses. And the last question, which I'm going to go over right here, is did it actually decrease the recurrence rate? Because it's one thing to go ahead and look at the tumor and say, yeah, the tumor's gone. But what you all really care about is does the patient do better, okay? So we did a pooled analysis. We're expanding on this right now. 72 patients treated with at least three of our institutions, uh, Dana-Farber, Brigham and Women's, University of Washington, and the B.I. Deaconess Medical Center. Uh, what we were examining these patients who were treated was the time to biochemical recurrence, time to uh, metastatic disease, and uh, as an exploratory endpoint, we wanted to know if that minimal residual disease predicted response to therapy. Again, we're emphasizing over and over again the ability to use biomarkers, whether that's DNA repair biomarkers, whether that's uh, uh, immunologic biomarkers, or whether it's response to therapy to actually predict how patients are going to do, whether they're going to live longer. So this is the patient population. The thing I just want to emphasize to you is, you know, 75% of these patients had high-risk disease by the NCCN uh, group. All of them had Gleason 7 and above, and really, you know, two-thirds of them had Gleason 8, 9, and 10. Uh, and uh, a significant percentage of them had uh, T3 disease. So this is the time to biochemical recurrence. 
again, these are uh, multiple different studies. I don't want you to think this was one study. This is pooled analysis from a whole series of studies we did in this in this space. Uh, but what you can see is that uh, reasonable follow-up, okay, 23 patients had a biochemical recurrence, okay, a three-year biochemical recurrence rate was 70%. And one of the first questions you should ask, these were patients who were treated with very intense hormonal therapy, abiraterone, apalutamide, uh, enzalutamide, uh, and uh, the majority of one year had, had reestablished a normal testosterone. Time to metastatic disease, about 7% of the patients had developed metastatic disease. Uh, there was actually one death from prostate cancer, even though the average fault was only three years. It just speaks to us about how aggressive the cancer was. Overall survival, though, was fairly good because only one patient doesn't impact. So I think this is the most interesting thing about this study. So if you had the time to biochemical recurrence and you look whether the patient was downstaged, okay, the patients who were downstaged, none of them recurred. None of them recurred. Whereas the patients who continued to have significant residual disease were, say, still T3 disease, those patients had a recurrence rate. If the, oops, we go back. If the patients had uh, minimal disease, no disease or minimal disease, so less than point, uh, you know, less than five millimeters of cancer, none of those patients recurred. None of them. And the recurrence rates were all in the patients who had minimal residual disease. This is a randomized phase three trial that I'm one of the PIs of, okay? It's going to be launched all over the country, so I'm on my soapbox a little bit. Uh, if you have patients like this, refer them to somewhere where the, the trial is open. The patients are going to be treated with apalutamide uh, and uh, androgen deprivation therapy versus androgen deprivation therapy. So it's a randomized, placebo-controlled registration trial. So we start treating these patients as the standard of care. If it's a positive trial, the patients are going to get a radical prostatectomy, and then they're going to get an additional six months of therapy. They can get radiation. They can get anything you want afterwards. It's the standard of care. You can still give. The only thing we're doing is adding very intense androgen deprivation therapy. We've used inclusion criteria to try and identify the most aggressive cancers. So in conclusion, CYP-T is the only FDA-approved immunotherapy, so there's only one to remember. Uh, we went in extended time on apalutamide, enzalutamide, and darlutamide for metastatic castrate-resistant disease. And I would actually argue the future is quite bright. We're going to see an acceleration of, of FDA-approved treatments in all these different spaces. One of the hardest things about being on this guidelines panel is the data comes at us so fast, it's really hard to figure out. I go to the renal cancer meetings, and they talk about all the drugs that are available there, and I look at them, I say, is the prostate as confusing as this? And they say, no, no, it's more confusing. Uh, so it's, uh, you got to keep on top of it if you're going to use these treatments. And that's it. So unfortunately, I didn't leave a lot of time. But I, if people have questions, come on up to the mic. We'll stay here until they kick us out of the room. Bob Dowling. Um, I wonder if you could comment on the current role of first-generation antiandrogens in the index patients and whether that might change with your guidelines update. So I think I think it will change. I think there's good studies. There's a study called Enzorads that's going on that's going to read out soon where they gave enzalutamide instead of bicalutamide uh, in combination with androgen deprivation for high-risk localized disease. Uh, the only indication I can see now for bicalutamide uh, or flutamide or I don't think anybody uses the other ones, uh, is uh, for patients who are receiving androgen deprivation therapy in combination with radiation therapy, a lot of the randomized trials use bicalutamide, and so people, you know, still feel like they have to use that because that's the standard of care. But I think that's going to go away really rapidly. Yeah, I, I would also just comment that 
you know, using androgen deprivation therapy as, as, uh, by itself is really not the standard of care for these metastatic hormone-sensitive patients. Combination therapy with either docetaxel or uh, abiraterone is, is really where we need to be with, with these patients with advanced hormone-sensitive metastatic disease. Yes, sir. This is maybe slightly off topic, but uh, is the early versus late hormone therapy debate completely dead at this point? Are there patients that are candidates for late hormone therapy? Uh, I, uh, I, I think that debate is a little bit dead, but not because of they've answered that question, but because intermittent androgen deprivation has taken over. So we see patients, the intermittent androgen deprivation data I think is fairly robust. And so when I have patients that have, you know, biochemical failure, uh, I tend to use intermittent androgen deprivation in those patients and stop and start it, uh, and I think they tolerate it very well. Uh, I, I, you know, my, my gestalt is that uh, earlier therapy is better, but it's not as dramatic as, you know, as, as, as we would think. I, I, I personally don't wait until patients develop metastatic disease. I'm curious what everybody else does. I mean, one yeah. thing I would add to that, um, at ASCO uh, this past year, William O. had a, a big session where they debated intermittent versus continuous, and, and it's a statistical issue, but continuous is superior to intermittent. But then factor in quality of life issues, and then I think it becomes it becomes a, a, a bit of a, of a toss-up. And, and uh, whether the patient actually has metastatic disease versus a biochemical recurrence. I, but in, in to direct your question more more specifically, you know the issue with looking at early versus delayed hormone therapy. If you look at that data, and there was a great meta analysis published in Lancet a few years ago, you only see about maybe a three to five percent difference if you look at across all these studies uh, to doing earlier versus more delayed androgen deprivation therapy. And you really have to sort of weigh the side effects. And we all, all of our patients are frankly a little hesitant, especially the younger ones, to go on hormone therapy. So at least in my practice, I've, I've really gotten to the point where I'll delay it uh, until certainly uh, the point where uh, you begin to see evidence of disease uh, outside the prostate. Uh, and then often at that point just begin inter uh, intermittent hormone therapy. Again, for those patients that really don't want to be on hormone therapy. And, yeah. and then one other quick thing. I mean, this is definitely a data-free zone right here, but with the new generation PET scans in people who have hormone-sensitive disease that recur after definitive treatment, um, I think a, a common approach that a lot of us are using, you identify via the PET scan where disease is, and then you locally treat that with radiation, sometimes with surgery. I personally don't believe you're providing a survival benefit to these patients. We'll see down the road. But, but it does seem like you're able to delay the, the initiation of hormone therapy, and I think we'd all agree there's, there's a lot of advantage to that. Yes. Yeah, in the, in the patient with uh, radiation recurrent uh, M, M0, MPC, um, do you think there's still a role for local salvage therapies? You mean surgical salvage therapies? Or, 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 or ablative therapies such as yeah. cryo or something? So I would say the answer to that is yes. Uh, I think that you have to pick your patient very carefully. Uh, I think the patient has to understand the potential side effects associated with the, those therapies, uh, but I think there is a, is a, a potential si uh, survival advantage. I mean, I've read data that only 2% of men that would benefit from a salvage surgery actually get it, mostly because patients choose radiation over surgery because they fear the side effects. And you tell them the side effects, uh, and, and you know, after, sur after radiation, and they shy away from it. But I, I would just add to that, 
you know, we have so much better tools now to really select those patients that are going to benefit. Yeah. Oxman PET scanning uh, is, is really opened up this, this area. So I think we're going to do, as, as we move forward, we're going to be much better at doing, you know, salvaging these patients uh, because we're going to pick the correct people. You know, those that have positive lymph nodes are not going to benefit from local treatment. Yes, sir. A uh, quick question. Uh, 68-year-old, extraordinarily healthy. Can you, can you speak into the microphone? It's hard to hear. 68-year-old, extraordinarily healthy uh, gentleman, radical potassium in 2005, um, I'm sorry, 2004, 3 plus 4, T1C, organ confined. At three year, uh, two years, he had a biochemical recurrence. At three years, he had salvage radiation therapy, which would be 2008. Um, in 2014, uh, he had a detachable PSA, um, and imaging showed two hollow nodes largest 1.5 centimeters, um, biopsy-proven metastatic prostate cancer, began androgen deprivation at that point, and um, CRPC um, in 2018, so a year and three months into his detectable PSA, or MCRPC. His PSA was, a year ago at detection was 0.2, his most recent PSA was 2.0. Question is, um, what next? Likely provenge, or uh, if 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 provenge, at what level of PSA do you start? So he's, so he's asymptomatic castrate totally resistant asymptomatic. prostate cancer. He's, practi he's practicing law 14 hours a day, and still doing a. Uh, but, but he's ca castrate resistant prostate cancer. Yes, correct? with met metastatic. However, the imaging now, those nodes are gone. So he's, M, he, he's M0 CRPC. Basically, so, because he had the nodes, and they're not there now. So the data would say that he's less likely to develop metastatic disease if he has, uh, or I guess in this case, recurrent metastatic disease, if he's treated with darlunamide, aplutamide, or enzalunamide. So that's what I would choose to you no, I, I think the Ciplicil T is a very reasonable thing to think if he, you know, he's, he's, got, he's had lymph nodes. Um, yeah. They've shrunk down, presumably, but there's potentially disease there. I'm confident so, there is. So CIPT is not approved. If it, in the studies of CIPT, about 10% of the patients had M0 disease, uh, but the uh, the approval was only for patients with metastatic disease. So you could give CIPT, but you might have trouble uh, uh, getting it approved. I've actually gotten CIPT and apalutamide approved. Okay, good. Both. Good. But wh which and when? Uh, so. Uh, I would I would probably treat with apalutamide and enzalutamide, one of those first, but uh, others. My, my argument would be, it sounds like a really slow doubling time. I'd want to define his doubling time now, and if it's you know if it's over ten months, an, an option is observation and, and delay treatment. We will hang out here if anybody wants to come up and ask questions. Okay. okay.